0: Hello lovely people, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Now, welcome to Series 5. Wow, the next chapter has been going for a year now, I can't believe it. And I'm so excited to celebrate this with today's episode with somebody I also can't believe I've got on this podcast, Mr Eamon Holmes OBE. I'm not sure Eamon Holmes needs much of an introduction. He's one of our most loved household names. He's presented pretty much everything from, of course, GMTV, This Morning, Sunrise, The National Lottery, Songs of Praise, Radio 5 Live, the list continues. And now he's just started his own next chapter presenting GB News. Eamon speaks openly and honestly about what life really has been like being one of our biggest television stars, how his life growing up through the troubles in Northern Ireland helped him become the journalist he is and how he nearly missed out on Teddy life altogether – I'll let him tell you what happened, but I was fascinated by Eamon's story and I hope you'll be too. Now, I first met Eamon during my own first chapter nearly 25 years ago when I was a runner at GMTV. All I wanted to do then was to be a television journalist and Eamon was my absolute hero. I remember the day I met him and I thought if ever I do become that journalist, it would be my dream to interview him. Well, it's taken nearly a quarter of a century but I really hope you'll agree it was worth the wait. Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here he is, Mr Eamon Holmes, OBE. Mr Eamon Holmes, OBE, welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. I am slightly lost for words to have you here, but that would not be the best way to start this interview.
1: Why? Why are you lost for words?
0: Well, because you're Eamon Holmes, OBE, who I have known and admired for nearly 25 years.
1: I remember you when your your little bones were hardly formed, of course, you know, when you were... uh... Uh, at GMTV was where we we first met up and it's been just lovely to watch you pursue your dreams and make your dreams come true take matters into your own hand and uh, and it's it's worked well so you can practice what you what you preach
0: well you are making my dream come true, but Eamon, you may be my first household name, you may be my first OBE, but I'm not gonna treat you any differently to any of my other guests, okay? So we're gonna stick to the formula and we can't start wandering off. So we're gonna start (laughs) with the prologue. Now, you were born and you grew up, in Belfast in Northern Ireland um, there's even a story I believe when you were born when you came into the world you missed your mum's birthday by 15 minutes yes and yes. and she called you uh, Eamon after Eamon Andrews
1: yeah because um, when when she had me and she was in the maternity ward and um, she didn't know what name to give me and uh, there was either a magazine yeah it was a magazine I think it was a magazine with Eamon Andrews on the front of it. And, the you know, incredibly popular man in Ireland. And uh, she basically looked at that picture, and she looked at me and she said that I had black curly hair just like him. So she thought Eamon is a good name. And there you are, and it's stuck. And whether it was destiny or not, that, you know, he was a, a multifaceted broadcaster, so many different areas from sport through to current affairs, uh, children's programs as well. That maybe it was maybe it was an omen. Maybe he was the one that um, I was aspiring to be. But yes, I was definitely named after, Eamon Andrews with two N's.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then I mean, it really was. So then, so you grew up in the New Lodge. Um, that's where you started off. You had an older brother at you at this stage. Uh, yeah. You didn't have a bathroom. You had two bedrooms. Uh, it was a council house. But from the sounds of things, it was very much uh, a a lovely, lovely community. You were very close as a young as young children with your, with your neighbours. Your dad was a carpet fitter. Your mum stayed at home and looked after you, but run the house in such a you know in in, the, in the, such a great sort of orderly way. I love the story of of your dad putting the money in at the end of the week, um, when he, from his his cash and he, she put it into the the crystal bowl. So you didn't have lots of money, should we say? But it sounded like you grew up in in a house filled with complete and utter love
1: yeah and i would not have been aware that we didn't have much money but my mother was you know she had very high standards and the dynamic between her and my dad worked really really well he did what he did he had the the skills and the craft and he went out and worked uh, very hard and you're right there was this crystal waterford crystal fruit bowl and at the end of the week he would put his money in there and he would say, you know, good girl to my mom, you you take what you need. And, um, and then whatever was left, he, he got, and it was an amazing community, Ellie, because this doesn't exist anymore. It was a, a street of terraced houses. And at the top of the road was a, was, were two pubs. Um, there was a cinema, uh around us there were you know basically a butchers a bakers a candlestick makers there was you know there was an ice cream parlor there was a fish and chip shop there was a laundry there was a wool shop there was it was incredible pharmacist right across the road i thought if you had a a model uh to design a community for today why wouldn't you do that you wouldn't you don't need a car to go anywhere and these shops service the local community the local communities very happy to avail of that but those times are gone and it was there was a great sense of community um, uh, and and I just remember happiness right right beside our house attached to our house was a fruit and veg shop which was which was very good and general merchandise so you could go in and buy sweets and things there as well but the the only downside to that was that um, the, the potatoes for instance and the turnips and the cabbages were all uh, stacked on the floor of the fruit and veg shop, uh, Katie Hughes's fruit and veg shop. And the trouble is it, they did attract rodents, mice, things like that. And they basically came through the wall, came through our fireplace and into our house. Uh, one, one, day ended up, one one day I couldn't put on my, my Wellington boot. And uh, my mum said, give me that, give, push your foot in, push your foot in. I said, mum, I can't, I can't put my foot in. And she lifted the Wellington boot and turned it upside down, and a mouse came out of it, which gave me a lifelong fear of mice.
0: I'm not surprised. And what about welly boots?
1: Uh, no, I'm I'm okay with those. But it's um, no the, the mice mice. No, no, they give me the creeps. Yeah, absolutely. We had an, an upstairs outside loo. We had a um, uh, a yard, a backyard, but it was you know it was very. I just remember happiness. I just just remember happiness, but I do, it gave me a great sense of community and a community depending on each other. And it also gave me, I was able to watch and be aware of um, social ills like betting, you know, there were a lot of bookmaker shops around and you could see the effect it had on people who would lose their weekly wage or um, alcohol with, with the pubs and things. Um, I don't drink, I' have nothing against alcohol, but I don't I don't drink, and I never place a bet. I rarely I, I'd only you know I'd take money that I knew I want I was happy to lose. But I've been to Las Vegas without ever putting a single coin in a slot machine. Hmm. And my, my father always said to me, you know, be aware of betting there is only one winner and it's not you. It's the bookmaker. Hmm. And um, and that sort of always stayed with me.
0: Absolutely, and you—I mean, obviously, you learned so much. There, and we'll go on to this because your dad—he was a carpet fitter, but obviously a very working man who made this really brave decision to go and work for himself, which I can imagine was quite a, a thing to do. Um, but this also—that you did move from there, didn't you, eventually? Which, forgive me if I haven't got my timings right from when you went to school, but you left New Lodge, um, and then you went to live in... yeah Okay, and then you went to Cliftonville Road with a with a bigger yep. house.
1: Yeah. um, Well, it, again, was another council house, but it was a big, it was a big house. Um, uh, And dad made the decision about 1966, 67 um, to work for himself, which again gave me um, an ideal to aim for was, was the fact that, you know, if you worked for yourself, you could work as many hours in the day as you wanted. And it was up to you whether you, you know, Worked hard or didn't work hard as to how much money you brought in or how much money you didn't bring in, and I could see that example benefiting our family and 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 working really really well. So, you know, you look at the energy crisis today and people not being able to pay fuel bills. If you're on a fixed salary, you're in big big trouble. If you're someone who can actually work more hours and increase your pay packet, then that's an advantage. Um, and and. It, it's dead with me. That's what I wanted to do in life. It, it was just subliminally there in my mind to do that. Um, we moved from our our small terraced house to um, a, a much bigger council house in a crescent, and um, it had a massive back garden and that, incredible and a front garden and back garden, and it was absolutely incredible for us. You know, you had the bathroom inside, and you know it. it to this day my mother still lives there my mother's 95 and um, she still lives there that is the the family home which we
0: we now own mm, amazing amazing because I'm um, so many memories you have must have there which again we'll go on to but so you as a as a child i mean I, it sounds like you were quite a, a good pupil maybe a little bit mischievous at times amen it's fair to say you went to grammar school though and you went to st malachy's college um yeah. and you were good but you, you weren't so good, I think it's fair to say, at maths.
1: No, no, it's absolutely useless at math. I was very good at arithmetic. I mean, if you asked me times tables, now I could recite them. I could do anything like that. But when it all came to logarithms and algebra and uh, all sorts of things like that, uh, it was all in a different language for me. And I, I found it very hard to stay uh, abreast of that at grammar school and uh, the net result was that I I didn't pass my O level maths in in sixth year and uh, it was a requirement to get back uh, to the sixth form of the school Um, so I was called in to the the president's office the headmaster and um, uh, basically I had to sort of plead my case as to why they would allow me back into sixth form and uh, luckily my English results were all very good and uh, basically the president, um, who himself had a mathematics degree from Cambridge, a Master of Science, and um, so the, so this was terrible. But subsequently, years later, um, another president of the school, uh, when I was visiting, he showed me the report that uh, was written up about me, and the the president, who went on to be the bishop, um, said that against his better judgment, he allowed me back into the college because he was so impressed with the argument that I gave and the dedication and the vision that I had in wanting to be a journalist. And when I said I wanted to be a journalist, he said to me, haven't you thought of any of the professions? I'm thinking, oh, journalism's a very good profession. And he said, no, I'm talking about the priesthood, medicine, the church, um, yeah, what else, what else? Um, uh, law, you know, accountancy, whatever, whatever, but um, uh, journalism wasn't regarded as, as a profession at all but i pleaded a good case um my english results were all very very good and i i got back yeah, yeah. but i knew from a young age i mean i, I knew because of the troubles in northern ireland uh, and watching them observing them not only on television but um you know just outside your front door basically that i i wanted to do this i had a mission to explain and uh, and i was very uh, strongly driven into doing this and to doing something that I, that I was interested in, that I probably loved even then and believed in.
0: Because while you had this very idyllic life sort of within home in this lovely home filled with complete and utter love and fabulous values, outside your front door, I mean in that big garden you were talking about, you and your brothers, you were were held at gunpoint while your mum and dad are in the house watching play cards right so you you were you had such a contradiction of a life didn't you and that um, and obviously you saw so much but I remember reading that you you were I think it was a project with um, JFK but it got you know you were really then you you loved to investigate and you loved to research these historic events and this was where you got your real passion for journalism
1: yeah um, and I would watch the best and forget the rest and, uh, you know, w- watch a lot of uh, news and current affairs. Um, because of the troubles, I was probably heavily te- televisionally educated because, um, I didn't have a traditional, uh, teenage, uh, life. Uh, you, you, couldn't go to youth clubs, you couldn't go to discotheques when you could, but I, I would have so many stories to tell about, um, you know riots and fights and all sorts of knifings and uh, all sorts of awfulness, and um, you see what would happen in Northern Ireland if, as a teenager, you went to a uh, a disco as they were in those days. Um, at the end of the night, it was a requirement from the Northern Irish government that um, you would the event, the uh, venue, would play the national anthem at the end of the night. Now, what that meant was that anybody who was of Unionist or Protestant orientation would finish the end of the night. So after the, the slow dance or whatever, you would uh, then the lights would go up and they would play the national anthem. And anyone of a Unionist or Protestant disposition would stand to attention for the national anthem. And out of protest, most people who weren't of that tradition, a nationalist or Republican uh, tradition or, or, or Catholic in religion, would boo hiss walk out but that just started oh my goodness bottles flying ashtrays being thrown across people chucking tables and chairs it was it was horrendous it was so divisive i mean we even had to stand for the national anthem at the end of the um cinema showing so if if the the film you know finished at half nine at night or ten o'clock or whatever they played the national anthem um which they used to do in television as well but such was that whole thing of identity and how identity would split people, a very fractious society. And, um, you know, it wasn't something that I ever adhered to. I just really wanted to play it straight down the middle and um, had very little time for it one way or the other. It just didn't really matter to me. Mm-hmm. So I was good from that point of view that when I became a journalist, I could see it from both sides. I didn't have any affiliation to orange or green.
0: Yeah. No. Okay. So moving on then into your first chapter, how you became a journalist. Now, in my research, I mean, I I've known you for a long time, but I have been learning quite a lot about you, and I hadn't quite understood what a I would describe this and my boys now tinkers that you were because there were a couple of incidents in particular. So yeah. So you applied to the Belfast College of Business Studies, and as oh. I understand, there were there was about three hundred people applying. It was a really popular and. Yeah. 10 people got a place. Yeah. You got selected. But yeah. first time round, you, turn, you turned down the place.
1: Well, I didn't turn it down. My mother turned it down. And um, it was... it. It's very strange when I look back at this. And I said, Mum, Mum, I've been accepted for the journalism college. I'm going to be a journalist. And she said, No, you're not. I need a wage coming into this house. You're going to go out and get a job. And nowadays... You know, most people would have disobeyed that instruction or rebelled against that instruction. And it sort of sums up, I suppose, how compliant I was or how much respect I had for my parents. And I I turned down the college place, I suppose, or and that was it. And um, I got a job in Primark, uh, the, or Primark as we call it in Ireland, uh, the department store. And I was a trainee manager there. And it was the toughest, hardest job, uh, and in retail. And it was, it was. I just knew I couldn't hack it. I have such respect for people in retail. The hours were long, the pay wasn't great. Um, you know, a lot of hassle from the general public and whatever. And um, at the end of my time there, the end of a year, I thought, no. I'm going to I'm going I'm going to apply for that college course again. No, um, they realised that I'd turned them down the year before, so they weren't keen to have me back. Uh, but I I blagged my way in. Uh, <laughs> I got in, and I said to my mum, "I'll work at a pub five nights a week, six seven nights a week. You can have that. You can do what you want, but I'm not. I'm I'm going to be a journalist." And I think Ellie, the result of that was. That because I'd experienced the real world and I'd experienced a real job and I experienced how hard it would be to be in a real job, that I was more determined and worked even harder to succeed at my my chosen profession because I got the chance. I was so grateful, so grateful. And believe me, believe me, when you've tried real jobs and, you know, listen, we've all done, you know, jobs as kids and students and paper rounds and milk floats and goodness knows what, and I, I worked very seriously in the bar. I thought I would be a um, a barman. I thought that's really what my career would be. But when I got the chance, I really applied myself to broadcast because it wasn't like a real job. It really was. It was everything that I wanted to be. It was creative. Um, you had a great license to go and make your own films, to rub shoulders with you know people who you knew just from the television. Um, and it was it was wondrous. It was basically wondrous. And I wasn't going to let it slip this time.
0: No, no, not at all. So the, and the lady who interviewed you, if I again, apologies, I haven't got this right. Mrs Fitzpatrick, yeah. she actually, you really hoped she wouldn't recognise you, but she did. Yeah. She yeah. did. And you, she could have very well said, do you know what, you're not going to come in. But you did tell her a little bit of a yarn.
1: Well, I told her lots of yarns i mean i basically must have been quite a good actor but i basically said yes but the reason i turned this down it was terrible illness in my family you know my father was very ill and um, i had to go and get a job and uh, to supplement the 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 wages coming into the house and whatever and i you know i did the whole sob story bit and um and the, she must have felt sorry for me and that was it but i have something else to thank her for really because when i was you know, in my in my class and Mrs. Fitzpatrick would go round the class and say, right, you know, Barker, what do you want to do? And you would say, I want to write for the Irish Times and someone else, what do you want to do? I want to write for the Belfast Telegraph. What do you want to do? I want to write for the Guardian. And then so it would go round and then came to me, what do you want to do Holmes? And I'd go, I don't want to write for anybody. I want to be a broadcaster. I want to be a TV journalist and literally, Everybody in the class laughed, they all laughed and didn't overly annoy me. I just thought, well, you be you and I be me, I know what I want to do. And I went and I got a job in Dublin this time, across the border um, with a building magazine. God, it was boring. Oh, it was so boring, I couldn't begin (laughs) to tell you. It was basically, you just had to compile lists of how many breeze blocks or miles of electric cable um some, so some, some, some builder needed for um, the construction of a new school or whatever. And it was, it was horrendous. But anyway, the phone rang one day and it was Mrs Fitzpatrick. And she said, you always wanted to be a TV reporter, didn't you? And I said, yes. She said, yes. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. She said, well, Ulster television are looking for farming reporters or for a farming reporter. And I said to her, but Mrs Fitzpatrick, I don't know anything about farming. I'm a city boy born and bred." And she said, rule one of journalism, Eamon, find out. And so I always find it to be. So whether I am uh, commentating on horse racing, reporting from tennis or politics, or talking about a soap opera on TV, you find out about it. You find out, that's what it's always been. You just find out about it and you relay the info. So I went for the screen test. And I was up against seasoned agricultural correspondents and uh, various other reporters. And um, I was 19 at the time and I got the job. And the reason I got the job was I suppose I had a technique. They had the words, but I had the technique. And I knew that, you know, when I was to broadcast, I would have to um, write my scripts the way I speak, which is much more natural way, Um, whereas a lot of journalists write the way they read, which is not the way to do it for TV. I hope you can see the difference, what I'm saying there, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. But um, one is a much more natural um, way of, of, of applying yourself. I got the job, amazingly, I got the job. And then the the incredible thing was that when I was in studio, and I, I was a reporter, and the, the programme was recorded on a Saturday to be transmitted on a Sunday lunchtime, And I was in one day and uh, very early on, my second or third film, and uh, the producer of the programme, a giant of a man, um, had an argument with the presenter of the programme, which came to fisticuffs. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. So you sat in the studio watching, they said, oh, my word, oh, 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 and anyway, then he turned around to me and he said, you young homes. I said, yes. And he said, have you got a jacket and a tie? And I went, yes, yes. I have. Yes. He said, put it on. You're presenting this program. And I remember then, you know, remember it was pre-recorded, but it was there was no chance for doing it again. I just just had to do it uh, as it was recorded. And I remember my heart beating so fast. I actually couldn't hear the words that I was reading, the words that were on the autocue script. I couldn't. Actually, I was reading them. My mouth was moving, but I couldn't hear anything because my heart was pounding into my, my chest. And uh, there you were. That was the magic of TV, and there was no turning back after that.
0: No, there wasn't. Before we move on from that, though, is it right, though, you nearly turned down that that chance? Because you thought they were offering you £44 a week. Oh, no, no,
1: don't spoil the story. Don't spoil the story. I'll tell you the story, <laughs> you right?
0: You tell the story.
1: So, so I said... Uh, when they said, right, you've got the job, I said, how much would that be? And the guy said, uh, right, it's, uh, it's the NUJ, National Union of Journalists, rate, 44 pounds, 44 pence. So I'd go, right, 40, 40, 80, 160, a month by 10, 1600, for about 12. Well, that's less than two grand a year. I'm on 3,200 at the minute. so you know that's that's not much of a deal and I said to him I'm sorry I said that's not much of a deal he said you like sport don't you I said yes he said right he phoned the sports editor he said right I've got you two jobs at the weekend on sport doing sports results and things in here he said I said how much is that he said his exact words were same money so I had same money same money so he's getting me to do more work for for the same money and as you will know TV relies on that. TV relies yes. on a lot of people being eager and not oh, wanting yes. any money, and whatever. But I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. I just bought a card, 500 quid. I just got engaged. I thought, no, this is this is ridiculous. So he basically threw me out. And his secretary was walking me out the door, and she said to me, "What, what went wrong? They loved you. What went wrong?" And I said, "What went wrong?" I said, "See, I may be 19, but I'm not stupid." She said, "What do you mean?" He said, "What?" 44 pounds 44 pence a week she said that's not a week that's a day so basically he just offered me about 10 grand i'm on three thousand quid and he's offered me 10 grand and i've said no to it so that was that took a bit of backtracking to get in there again and do that but but when i often i go into a cold sweat ellie and i think really without one move because i didn't understand i couldn't understand why you would pay anybody 44 quid a day you know, it was, you know, this was 1980. This was October 1980. And the sums didn't stack up in my head. And it, it was it was incredible to go from 3,000 quid to 10, 11, 12,000 quid. It was absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah, and if she uh, hadn't said anything, you could have just walked out and life could have been so different.
1: Life, I, I often go into cold sweat thinking how different life would be. Mm. The main thing is only because... I'm absolutely blessed doing a job that I love, that I'm really interested in. And there's so many facets to I'm not just doing one aspect. You know, I do so many different areas of television and I understand TV. And I'm a a student of TV and it's just a tremendous privilege. And I do have huge, huge, huge respect for people who do real jobs, real jobs, especially jobs that involve labor or some sort of skill. And um, yes, at times I think to myself, I've no certificate on the wall that says, you know, that you're a consultant and you're a surgeon, you're a, you know, an, uh, an optician, that you're a dentist, whatever it happens to be. Um, but, and, and, and sometimes, you know, because we're there to be changed at anyone's whim, any executive's whim, like them, don't like them, give you a job, won't give you a job. It's very precarious. It's like being an actor, I suppose, and being judged like that or being a footballer, or a sports person. But um, but there we are, I, I, you know, people think, Ellie, that the difficult thing it is very, very difficult to get into television. And um, but that's not the most difficult thing. The most difficult thing is being able to stay there. You know, you can get on the conveyor belt, but staying on the conveyor belt is the real skill or the real bit of luck
0: yeah well i think it's i think it's skill and luck because you learned from everyone didn't you so you i mean when you were at, um ulster tv gloria honeyford was the person for so you learned a lot from her didn't you and everyone you worked for you and um, worked before you you were learning all the time what i find incredible and we are going to move on from this but while you were you you became like the youngest anchor person i think ever of tea time news yeah. for ulster tv and at the same time you were still going to the pub to work in the evenings and i don't think i've ever heard that before i mean that is we're talking about with your dad's work ethic and everything this is proper work ethic isn't it uh
1: okay well i'll tell you and you can you can judge it yourself um i i thought it was too good to be true i thought my luck was too good to be true um remember you're not on staff jobs you're on short-term contracts and uh I was in the bar, I was under manager. I'd I'd done very well in the bar trade and um, I enjoyed it and it it brought me out of myself. It gave me social skills to be able to talk and interview people, which I was able to apply in in later life. But um, I, you're right, I got this tea time job. Gloria moved on to Radio 2 in London. I got her job, I was 21. It was an hour long program. I I mean, it wasn't just reading autocure bulletins. We had big interviews with big people. They don't get much bigger than the Reverend Ian Paisley uh, bellowing at you in a studio or Jerry Adams or, you know, this was this was top level stuff. And uh, we also also did you know, we also did lighter stuff, show busy stuff, whatever. And it it taught me um, a lot about being able to change gear between items and the tone of items uh, on the program. But um, so I'd go into the bar in the evening and one night my manager, uh, Pat Thompson said to me, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "Amen, come here. And I walked over to the side and he said to me, what's this all about? I said, "What, Pat, he said, you serve them, meaning the customers, um, you serve them up the news until seven o'clock at night. Then you come in here and you serve them pints. He said, that's, I mean, that's not right. That's not right. You can't be doing that. And I genuinely looked at him and I said, but Pat, this TV lark, he said, this, this may not last. And he just pulled my bow tie off me and he said, it'll last, come on. And he brought me out to the the back of the bar. We shared an orange juice each and we said goodbye. And that was the end of my bar career. But it was Pat really who gave me the, the confidence to say, it's not going away. You're obviously good enough. People aren't good saying, you're good, you're brilliant, you're this, but that was his way of saying, you know, he was a man's man. He wasn't gonna be overly impressed by what I did, but he he was basically saying to me, you're good enough. Don't worry, it's obvious that this is going to last. and And that was incredible, but to be 21, And doing, doing that was just, just amazing. I mean, it's unheard of. You wouldn't switch on the TV anywhere now, anywhere and see an anchor, um, you know, being less than 35, really Mm -hmm. sort of presenting shows.
0: I think it's just so important for the lovely listeners who are listening to this, the fact, because, you know, if they're all thinking what they can do next or, you know, or struggling in some way, because it's very easy to see somebody like you today and like, oh, you've never been through any of this. But it is all these moments of self-belief, isn't it? And carrying on. And this sort of carried on then. So so you, then you moved on to, to the next chapter, which is not the next chapter, but you presented a national open-air programme in Manchester. So this was that was huge, wasn't it, for you, to go to something oh. like that? And, I was poached
1: basically. I was headhunted. Um, you know, I had been doing the tea time news in uh, at Ulster Television, Good Evening in Ulster, for five years. It was now 1986, and uh, daytime television was starting in England. Uh, the BBC were launching a whole range of programs. From they had breakfast time on in the morning, and then they wanted to continue that through to lunchtime to Pebble Mill at one, and then beyond that until children's program started at um whatever time they started four or five o'clock in the afternoon so great opportunities that don't really exist today but um so i was headhunted and asked to front up this this program out of manchester and although when i look at it now i mean i didn't voluntarily want to go but i knew i had to go because i was now only 26 and i thought you know might do another four years of this I'll be 30 and they will think he's been doing this too long we need to change him so I could be washed up with 30 so I think it's that insecurity Ellie that drives you and keeps you going and you realize I realized I had to go and um, I went to Manchester and I had um, you know it was, it was, it was a ma- massive city the most friendly city absolutely incredible um the BBC were broadcasting almost everything out of Manchester every sports program uh, loads of light entertainment programs as well documentaries and across the road was Granada TV home of Coronation Street and they had a whole raft of programs along similar lines as well and there were two big football teams Manchester was the place to be a lot of redevelopment going on and I had a I had a great time I relocated my life to Manchester and uh it was a very, very happy time in my life, yeah, which went very, very quickly.
0: Mm, you met Sir David Frost, who is your hero?
1: Yeah, I met David Frost um and uh, look he was he was lovely. I learned a lot from David Frost and um you know I do I do go back to this thing you know whatever your field in life is, whatever it is, whether you're a teacher, whether you work in a bank, whether you work in a supermarket, whether you want to work somewhere differently. Most people are really quite ordinary at what they do. Most people just do enough to get by. And then there are those who stand out. And you won't learn anything from the ones who just do enough. You need to watch the ones, the top 1% or 2%. And I think it's obvious to see them, whatever your profession is. And that's why I believe in this phrase, watch the best, forget the rest, Mm -hmm. learn, proceed, see what they do best and be an amalgam of all sorts of people. You know, I mean, I could, you know, in me, when I was growing up, you know, there was, there was a little bit of um, Terry Wogan. There's a a bigger bit of Des Lyndon, there's a bit of David Frost. There was, you know, and then a lot of me. So there were, there were all these people who you would watch and learn from, whether how to dress, how to speak, how to look, at the camera how to read the cue, whatever um and the whole learning process i mean i love the idea even today you just watch people and you keep learning keep learning keep evolving because as darwin said evolve or die you know so you've got to keep evolving which is a good thing it's not that's not a uh any sort of penalty for me or uh, punishment for me. I, I, I love the idea of evolving and learning because in our business, technology changes all the time. You can shoot a whole program now on a phone, mobile phone, you know, yeah. as long as you know how to edit it, as long as you know how to dub it. Um, there, there's so much that you've got to adapt to and that um, television industry is less labour intensive now, more technology uh, driven. Things are automatic rather than using, you know, people to work cameras or to work a sound desk or whatever. All these things are done automatically and you've got to adapt to all of that. So I learn all the time, which is good because it probably keeps you quite young uh, with, with your outlook on things. Yeah.
0: Who do you learn from today?
1: Today, I would look at anybody and everything. I, I, I look at... Um, uh, a lot of young presenters. I look at how they're doing things. I look at how graphics and music affect programmes. Um, I look at the what's expected, how programmes are done. There's no point saying well, we didn't do it like that. You've now got to do it the way it's being done. You know, so you've got to look at. You know, there's no point looking at how David Dimbleby presented a programme. You look at how Stacey Dooley presents a programme. You know, and. and how, uh, how that is, uh, how that affects the audience and what the audience expect. I think the audience, in many ways, the, the audience is quite perverse. They've got huge expectations of your knowledge and things, but yet the truth is there's so many challenges. They've got very little expectations, maybe about the way a set looks or the, the title music or, you know, their attention span. I just don't understand why they're very very there's, there's none actually you're interviewing me over a long period of time such a program would never exist on television mm. so i don't understand why people's attention seems to be held on a podcast but it wouldn't be held on a television program mm. i look back constantly at interviews and the way they used to be done and uh, bbc2 has um, got a very good series called i think it's called talking pictures And these are interviews with, you know, people like Richard Burton, uh, James Stewart, you know, from a compilation from different shows that they've taken part in. And they sit with glasses. I mean, Burton sits with a whiskey glass in his hand, drinking it and a cigarette in his other hand. And they're reflective type programs. But, you know, now everything's zany, everything's quick, everything, nobody wants any detail. Um, And it's interesting because i watch the older programs because i like to find out how people think and you know what what formed the person who they are uh but there's no market for that in television there's no a chat show when you said chat show a chat shows you know three minutes with somebody and then somebody else comes on and someone else comes on there's no getting behind the person to see who they really are or what motivated them mm.
0: But I mean, this is you and I would be able to talk about this for hours and and now is not the time. But isn't that why there is such a hunger for these kind of podcasts? Because the people really do and they're not getting it from television necessarily. And they can listen to it while they're driving and learning. and, And, you know, you're doing it with me at the moment. I think it's that's why I've spent so long on your upbringing, because I think. Um, we don't know that about you. We see you on the, we all know you, which we're coming on to now, GMTV, but we don't know about you and, you know, New Lodge and, and this is what makes you. It makes you look at people in a totally different way. So going back to you and your story. So again, and it is all about resilience because that programme that you were talking about with, with obviously open air, one day and you were there, you were living the dream. And again, this goes to show, it it just stopped, didn't it? It just ended everything ended. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah there's this whole thing at the moment where you've got uh, hmrc the tax office who try and make out um that everybody who does what i do particularly people like me um are on secure staff jobs now i'm on a, a contract that has been renewed for certain programs because i've obviously been either good enough or cheap enough for them to keep me on there's no, there's never any security with it, never any security with it at all. And they will try and make out that, no, this is really a staff job. It's a safe job. And, uh, therefore you've been paying the wrong level of tax and uh, we're going to back tax you by 10 years. You know, it is so unfair. There's no recognition and there's no sympathy from the public. The public couldn't care less and they'll just think of oh, tax dodger, whatever, but it doesn't they attack people like me there's no sympathy but they will attack window cleaners they will attack supply teachers they will apply you know uh they, they will attack um gardeners you know all sorts of people they come for the names first of all they get that enshrined in law and then they go for everybody else the country's broke they've got to get as much money back from everybody as they can fairly yes but this is not none of this is fair so what i'm trying to say is you always live with the unpredictability of this job. And all you have to do is anybody to think about a broadcaster from, you know, their childhood or somebody from 10 years ago. And you say, I wonder where they are now, you know, because it evolves, it moves on a bit and, um, you know, you you just can't be guaranteed to be there. I mean, I'm lucky. I've been there more or less 42 years now uh, in various forms but the opportunities are different. There used to be local television, then there was regional television and national television. Now there's only reality shows and national television. You know, it's not, there's very few places for people to do their apprenticeship and uh, make mistakes and progress a bit up the ladder. So it's difficult And so I'm not in favor of the model that does away with regional or local representation. And, and that's why I would, defend the BBC license fee and I would say you will miss it when you're gone because you don't get that service from Netflix or Amazon Prime or anybody else there they're not interested in your local audience they're not interested in you know talking about your region your area whatever they're interested in blockbusters 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 Mm. but there's got to be more to it than that Well, it certainly was when I was growing up and um and and I suppose it, it was so important to me and so passionate that growing up in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland being represented, represented through people understanding what the political and socio economic problems were, but also uh, representing our communities and the people who we are, and our accents. I'm a great believer in accents, Ellie. Mm. I love the idea. You know, I don't like this idea that we're all going to speak the same. Yes, you should have a Scottish accent, a Welsh accent, a, a Midlands accent. You know, from the northeast, from the northwest, from the southeast, from the southwest. You know, that this is the variety. This is what makes people rich and uh, varied, and it makes us different. It makes us interesting.
0: Mm, makes us um, real.
1: Yeah, I think.
0: Well, speaking, so so, I'm also conscious you're being very generous with your time here, but we have to get on to just the next the next chapter on the fact so so when your open air show finished I mean again you could have just said you know what I've, I've had a fair innings that's enough of that but you didn't you and you didn't just go to GMTV you were working on the holiday program which you said was not overly glamorous which has you know you did every we all grew up with that thinking that would be really glamorous but then you carried on working you were doing long shifts you were picking up work Then along came GMTV. Now, what you're talking about there, that was what you did, isn't it? And eventually, obviously, with all the different partners and eventually, which is where our paths crossed, was when you were working with the fabulous Fiona. Um, And now I watched it as somebody who wanted to be a journalist and I watched you uh then and you know that's what you were doing and and you know the lovely people listening they watched you you know they were they were they you know you know that's you were just part of their morning you're part of their world and it's a a bigger connection I think than what we what we always get today but it's such a big connection so for you and I I mean you could spend so long talking about it and it's so hard to even ask the right questions but when you were doing something like that you sat down on that bright orange gorgeous sofa with all that team bustling around and you were doing one of the biggest shows on TV at that time of day. What was that like for you? I mean, did you ever get used to it?
1: Yeah, I got used to it. Um, I, I, But I, I got used to it because you, you have to get used to doing the job and getting up at the Rs and having the technique uh, right what what you could never get used to is the privilege of doing the job which is a a different thing um and it was a tremendous privilege waking people up in the morning or people waking up to you and you telling them something they did not know when they went to bed the night before so what what a great time slot to have it would be better i have to say if it was six o'clock at night rather than six o'clock in the morning but um but there you go with it there's an intimacy with it because people are getting dressed they're getting showered they're brushing their teeth they're making their toast you know they're putting their tie on whatever they're doing getting the kids ready for school and you're part of their fabric they the daily life that they they go through so that created i think a certain intimacy or connection with uh people who would have watched you instead loyal to you over the years with with various things but it was um it took its toll. It took its toll. It was, um, it was very intense. And uh, the the attention the programme got in terms of press and things was was a lot of pressure as well yeah
0: Mm, because I was going to ask you that I mean again having spoken about your upbringings and there you were I mean you're still that same person that you were then and then all of a sudden you Eamon Holmes are on the front pages of national newspapers and it's very easy for us picking up the newspaper we don't think that person is a human you know but but all everyone is a human and I'm a strong believer that we are all the same really deep down underneath so for you then see yourself on the front page what was that like for you
1: um, well, when I wanted to be a journalist and when I wanted to, you know, appear and report on programmes and things, I didn't think about appearing on the front page of newspapers and magazines. Um, when you appear on the front page of a magazine, it's usually a good thing. When you appear in the front page of a newspaper, it's usually a bad thing. So the intent, the incredible intrusiveness, uh, particularly in the 90s, from tabloid press that was a whole other education that was a whole other education and it didn't, I wasn't prepared for it in any way. You're not schooled or coached um, as to this is what's going to happen to you. And this is what they're going to ask you and whatever. So, you know, I can't look back at a lot of that and say that that was a tall, a happy period in my life. I was happy doing my job. I was happy while I was on air. I was, you know, I mean, I was fulfilling the dream that I had set out, but the whole idea of being involved, um, in a media storm, or uh, you know, stories that are made up about rivalries, or um, just just all sorts of personal stuff, that wasn't that wasn't nice to live with, and it wasn't nice for people around me to live with either. Um, so that that was that was that was pretty bad. Didn't like
0: that. No amazing is so I I came to work there as a as a runner and there you were there you were you know Meister David Frost was there Eamon Holmes and and Fiona Phillips walking up to, and I was trying to I always remember the moment I saw you and I was trying to like get a piece of paper out of the photocopier and I was trying not trying to be cool and I just so was not cool and you said hello and this is when I remember thinking if I ever make it as a journalist I would it would be a dream to interview him because you've thought you're you the person I watched interviewing, which is amazing. But, and anyone who's read my secret diaries and I talk about my hero one presenter, I, I think you won't mind me saying you are the hero one presenter. But, you know, you spent time when I blurted something out to you one evening when you'd had a ridiculously long day and you were doing, I think, a sports programme downstairs and you were coming back in the morning, you know, not not in the morning, uh, three hours yeah, later. I was
1: doing a sports programme on at 10.30 at night. Yeah. 10- to 11 30 and you would have been on the i
0: was on the night shift,
1: shift. So, so i was from a studio downstairs you have been so, there since oh, the morning yeah I, I was finishing a program alive it was like question time for sport and uh, it was finishing half 11 at night and i probably came through the newsroom to find out what are we doing tomorrow you know people like you there it takes me i get a cab home So there's very little time in bed, very little time in bed. But it's a great privilege. You're asked to do all these things. It's very, very hard to turn them down.
0: Yeah, but you, I, you walked past me, and I just, it's, I just remember it forever. And you said something, oh, how are you? Are you enjoying yourself? And I said, I really am. And then you, <laughs> you came and you sat on the other side of the runners' desk when you were utterly exhausted, and you probably not realizing, understanding. And I have a little bit more understanding now. You probably felt, you know, kind of dreadful. Probably how you feel now. In fact, you feel just exhausted. Just shut up. But you spent the time. And when I said to you, I wanted to be a reporter and a presenter. presenter and I felt so stupid because that's me saying it to you and you said okay well then that's what you'll be in the same way that that boss the barman said it it's these words and I suppose you the fact that you did that at that time I mean that that's the story I tell my uh, friends and family, and and you were very kind. And I I filmed a little video with my mum's video camera, and I was bright red and blotchy. And then you helped me organise to do like a little screen test in the um, in the studio. And I made I covered a cardboard box for eight minutes, and it was awful. And the gallery everyone was so kind, but it got me you know starting to think and being brave enough to say because that's half of it, isn't it? Being brave enough to be able to say what you really really want to do so to say it to somebody who was doing it at the scale you were and you didn't laugh at me that changed everything for me so thank you
1: no and, and I, I, I'm no different today I love sharing if someone has the enthusiasm that I had at that age for a job and for a dream I want to help them because nobody helped me really and people still don't help you broadcasting not a very generous profession people prefer not to help you because it doesn't threaten them than than to help you but i was never really threatened by anybody i just love to see talent and uh, nurture that talent and sometimes it's a dream and sometimes it's an unrealistic dream and sometimes ellie you've got to be aware that um, you could say right let's do the screen test and then you've got to be ready for someone to say do you know what ellie you may want to do this but actually it's not it's not for you and and that's you You know, i'm not saying that did apply to you it didn't apply to you but it I'm saying people who have these dreams because they have the dreams doesn't make them right. doesn't make, oh, I want to be on TV. Therefore you have a right to be on TV. No, what you have a right is for someone to be honest with you at some stage and say, actually, you're not going to make that because, and I always say, you've got to uh, judge yourself uh, by the standards of people who you admire. I mean, I would say to a person who who really does it for you on television. And they'd say, oh, Davina McCall. Davina McCall, I want to be Davina McCall. And i'd say but look at that tape are you davina mccall and you have to be honest i mean it's tough but it's true yeah you know because not everybody can be on and you know listen there are a lot of idiots that are on as well you just you can only hope that the audience like you and see what you're trying to do Mm. but you know there's a lot of people who we all look at and say how the heck did he or she ever get on tv why does anybody think that they're any good Mm. you know people will say that about me too but you've just got to hope that more will say I like watching that guy, man will say, no, I'm going to switch to the other channel.
0: Do you not think though, and this applies to everyone listening in any different field, if you know know deep down if what you're doing is right for you, because that will make you more passionate as you have. So for example, when I then went back and a dream really did come true as a Scotland correspondent, I did it for a year and I knew it wasn't right for me. I mean, it just regional regional TV. I absolutely Mm -hmm. love, and I it's it's my home. But it's it's being honest enough with yourself, I think, as well. Anyway, this is not about me, Aimee. This is about you. I I have to ask you this. Obviously, you've worked on this morning. I mean, you've got too many programs for me to list. Of I mean, the people you have interviewed. It's again, could never list them. John Travolta, Meg Ryan. piers brosnan i mean you can't you just go on and on prime ministers so much to this day is there an interview that you felt really nervous about that still to this day and then obviously you've been involved in huge things as well like Dunblame, blame the Omar bombings you know huge the biggest stories it what is there something that stands out to you and you think do you know what that day you were really really nervous
1: i think you're really nervous lots of times particularly breakfast tv live interviews because at a very you know you've got to go to bed knowing you're going to interview the chancellor of the exchequer the next morning at seven o'clock or the prime minister or whatever and you know you've got to do it to a certain standard and therefore that gives you an uneasy sleep and uh, you know when you get up the next day it'll be rush 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 and then sometimes it'll not be the chancellor of the exchequer interview that will be the hard one it will be the coronation street interview at 20 past eight that's hard because maybe you haven't watched that episode or you haven't watched for two weeks or whatever so it's funny the things that end up tripping you up um you know you 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 think you think that i I was i was always quite good with politicians because um i've I've just interviewed a number of politicians today and um, i think what i have with them I don't really care if they think I'm the smartest person in the world or not. Most journalists want to prove they're smarter than the politician. I don't. I just want to ask them questions and get answers to sensible questions. And I think what I have with most of them is a trust um, and they will open up to you, they will perform better for you. And often that's where that will be a better interview. So the interview is not about me. The interview is about about them. But it is about me from the point of view that I would have a, a style that would try and make their answers relevant to everyone's life. You know, so politicians can often say is, what people really want to know is, and I would say, no, do you know what? Nobody I know wants to know that. What they really want to know is this. And, uh, you know, all these stupid phrases they have, we're getting on with the job. You know, what job? You know, it's, it's, so the stuff that you just want to cut through the nonsense with, and you want to... I feel sorry for politicians, and I admire politicians because I wouldn't want to do it. I couldn't do it. Um, I couldn't be party political, for instance. I couldn't i couldn't follow orders from a whip, and I couldn't stick to maybe one party. I'd be drifting all over the place. But um, I, I think they just have to learn if they don't know the answer. And journalists are to blame for this uh, to a large degree. If they don't know the answer to your question, say, do you know what? I actually don't know the answer to that question, but I go back to my department and I'll find out an answer for you and I'll give it to you tomorrow or whatever. Now, that's seen as some sort of failure and some sort of awfulness. But there's no point saying, you know, to a health secretary who has been in the job for a week or two weeks, asking them questions about, you know, statistics and flow charts and whatever, because it, it's it's wrong because they you know they don't know it. You know they don't know the answer to it. So, you know, tr- give a person respect, treat them as human beings. You can actually say, you know, Secretary of State, I know uh, you've only been in this job two weeks and you won't be across the, the fine detail of this, but in general, could you tell me, is it your intention to reduce waiting times for ambulances? And if so, what's your plan for for doing that? um so just try and if, if if they can trust you, they will open up uh, more to you and I think I think that's a sort of impasse that we have at the moment that uh, it's all to you know, before a politician opens their mouths, there is this culture now in the country which is you sir, are a liar. we don't believe a word you're saying. you know no no, they're not liars, not all of them are liars. Some of them are bluffers and some of them have an unfortunate way about themselves that, they just can't answer a question, but they can't answer the question because they're afraid to give us the answers that are going to go against them, play against them. Mm-hmm. So we all have a responsibility in that and because th- at the end of the day, it's not about me that's important or even them. It's about who they're serving. For me, it's my audience. It's my viewers or listeners. And for them, it's their electorate. That's These are the people we've got to uh, give the answers to. And that's all I can really ask for. I've never sat with a program really and thought it's all about me, me, me. Um, I always think about what's this like to watch at home? Would I be watching this if I was at home? What am I learning from this? What do people want to know? I always always think in reverse, if you're with me. I always think it's not about me projecting out, it's about people watching me and projecting in. What are they expecting of me?
0: And do you think as well, this is, I mean, obviously you have gone even now onto another next chapter with GB News and, you know, you've done Sunrise, you've done your GMTV, you you had every right, Eamon, to say, do you know what, I'm fed up of getting up at 2.30, 3.30 in the morning. But do you think this is part of it that, and I understand this, that this is such a part of you as well, you want to just keep, you just want to keep doing this?
1: Of course you do. Of course you do. Because it's it's not like working for a living. I return to that again, you know, it's not like my father, who was working as a carpet fitter up until he died at 64, you know, I couldn't carry a carpet up the stairs or felt underlay or, you know, cut it the way he would cut it, I, I couldn't do that, I, could, I couldn't, I could you know, just beggars belief, but I can do this and, um, you know, it's, it's very enjoyable to do, we're having a very good time on GB News at the moment, but also, Ellie, it's not as simple as that. You know, people, journalists amaze me. You're interviewed by journalists and magazines, and they'll say, "What do you want to do next? What do you do? Do you, oh, I'm surprised you went to GB News. I thought you would uh, get your own chat show on BBC One on a Saturday night. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, but I turned that down. Are they really realistic? I mean, how ridiculous? There's so few jobs about, and there's so many criteria which determines who gets a job: your age, your stage, uh, you know, your your pay bracket um your appeal to the general public there's so many things come into play we don't have the choice or very few of us have very very few of us would have the choice of actually saying here's what i want to do Mm. you know Mm. you do you take what you're given Mm. you mean you must understand that it just amazes me that so many other journalists don't understand why aren't you doing this why aren't yeah. you doing a quiz show at seven o'clock every night someone never mm. thought of that yeah no. you know
0: no but also i think as well i think and this is why i struggled when i did the scotland job but i think if you love the job you also want to do it somehow whatever form that is and you wanted to keep doing that job and i think um I feel bad now because actually the next question of my structure of my (laughs) podcast is to be continued. (laughs) So um, I'm going to ask you, Eamon, don't get cross, but um, to be continued, is there something that you haven't done that you would like to do next?
1: Well, I do think I'd like to go into more in-depth talk shows and um, uh, GB News will probably give me a chance to do that. Um, What I've got to decide is who my interviews would be, and 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 it's terrible ellie to read who i would be interested in they wouldn't necessarily be interested in so you've got to find uh, this this middle line between uh, are they attracted to a big name a star name or are they just attracted to an interesting person for instance are they attracted more to watching uh, me interview joanna lumley or me interviewing a lady who i met this week who was the first uh, female bomb disposal uh, expert in the country for the army, you know, and you think, well, I don't know her. And then I would say to you, well, there's a an ITV program drama based on her life. And uh, this is she was really interesting, really, really interesting talking about uh, the job that she did. So sometimes it's not the people, it's the story.
0: Definitely. You know,
1: and I mean, when I mentioned Joanna Lumley, Joanna Lumley is amazing. Joanna Lumley is amazing. She's brave. She says things. She's slightly eccentric. Um she's crusading she's she's a survivor again she's a class act and there's so many people you admire so many people that you would like to put down but how often would it be if the person you know if the audience isn't interested if the audience isn't interested then it's game over isn't it you've got to do it on a way so i'd like to do something that's um more in depth more considered and um yeah because often when you write for newspapers for instance it's there your work your body of work is um, uh, framed you can have it you can file it whatever if you do live tv the way i do it's just it happens it's instant it's there it's gone again there's nothing sometimes there's there's not much of a sense of achievement except clocking up you know 27 28 years that i have done uh, on breakfast you know you can you can you can see that as a group of work, a body of work, and you can say, well, I'm I'm proud of that. But as for um, individual bits within it, you forget it all comes it comes at you every day. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what I did this morning. Mm-hmm. Never mind five years ago or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a difficult thing, but it's a lovely thing in a way. It's like it's like a drug. It's addictive. Mm-hmm. It's addictive. Live TV, the adrenaline flow, and being able to do it is is. Uh, it's great. It's it great. There's nothing
0: like it. Absolutely yeah. nothing like it. I, I wish there was a program which would interview both those ladies. I think, you know, because I think it's just, you know, everyone does have a story and that, that's why I, this is amazing having you on my podcast, but I've been interviewing midwives, a murder detective, a heart surgeon, you know, and it's just, this goes back to what we're saying, isn't it? And you, are, you more than anyone knows this, that everybody is a human, like what we said earlier. You are a human as well and I can't keep keeping your time. So f- to finish off your acknowledgements, who would you like to thank who has helped you along the way?
1: Very few people, very, very few people. And um, even now, I look and I think that a lot of so-called personalities are very mean with their time and very mean with their advice. I think because they're threatened, they're, they're usually quite threatened by it. I think there's a lot of selfish people uh, with what I do. But, you know, when I look back, if Mrs. Joan Fitzpatrick had not have recommended me to Ulster Television, So she put the ball at my feet. I had to put it in the back of the net. I did that. If uh, Rory at Ulster Television hadn't have given me the job and the 44 pounds, 44 pence a day, well, all of this would have been irrelevant. Mm -hmm. If a man called Peter Vile hadn't have poached me from Ulster Television in Belfast to the BBC network out of Manchester, that wouldn't have happened. If if Desmond Lynham hadn't have said to GMTV he didn't want the job as anchor and they said no but we'll pay you anything he said he said believe me you don't have enough money to pay me to do that job and they said no we do and he said no you don't he said but I know a guy who you should go for and they said who's that and he said "Uh, young lad operating out of Manchester called Eamon Holmes and you know so I've got to thank him for that because he put my name that way. And you go through your life and they're just key, key moments um, like that. People who give you a break. And um, the way, Ellie, I would have been prepared to look at you and say, I could see your enthusiasm, your hunger, your appetite, your love for the the profession that you were talking about. And the fact, you know, never say die attitude. And that's why you 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 took the Scotland correspondent job because you thought this is an opportunity I can do this it doesn't suit me personally but I could do this or whatever and then you realize not so much what your level is but where you're comfortable what what, what's making you happy you're then doing the job that you want to do uh, at a level you want to do in an area you want to do to be able to have a personal life as well. And you went, correct me if I'm wrong, was it Exeter or Bristol? Bristol, Bristol. Bristol, yeah. So you went there and that would have been the longest stint in your broadcasting career, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And I think it is all about finding something that fits for you. Going back to you, I mean, key moments, and obviously one we do have to say is that, you know, 2018 when you got your OBE, from the Queen, I mean, that, again, that moment, and you think there you're with your lovely family, and your lovely wife, but, and you're thinking back to everything. I mean, that when you think back to those moments, you know, back in the New Lodge, back in... that, and There you were at Buckingham Palace. I mean, you can't... There's no bigger leap, really, is there? What was that like that day? And I'm asking you to simplify it, but how did that feel?
1: I, it meant a lot to me. That's not to say it means a lot to everybody, and you've got to understand that the honours system, you know, some people agree with it, some people don't agree with it. But listen, from my point of view, I was deeply honored and I had to take it as a, a huge compliment and to receive my OBE for services to broadcasting um, was something that was probably quite historical. Um, you know, how young I was when I, when I got my break in, in Belfast um how I've represented the people of Northern Ireland uh, throughout those 40 odd years, um, how I've fought for my region and my people to be represented, to be featured. Because if you don't, the funny thing is, you know, if you don't represent Bristol, nobody else will, you know, no one else will talk. You have to say, is Bristol in the weather forecast? Is Bristol in the football results? Is Bristol, you just keep going on and on. Why is there no Bristol accent, Bristolian accents on this programme, whatever? That's me about Northern Ireland, that's other people about Scotland or Wales or, you know, Yorkshire, wherever it happens to be, Cornwall. And because, believe me, the broadcast business is London-centric and it thinks London all the time and it's as if nowhere else exists. And I just want to hear the beauty of regionality. I want to know about everything about this amazing country that we live in and I want to hear accents from Wolverhampton, from Aberdeen, from Plymouth, you know, from Bournemouth, so I don't care where they're from, I just want to hear the diversity of what we've got, and I would fight against a certain level of blandness that creeps in, a sort of international accent, and, you know, that it. I just want to celebrate, you know, I say to people, your views should make the news, that's... <laughs> that's really what it should be about if you're not broadcasting to your audience if you're not making it relevant to them what's the point really
0: okay so my final question and this is for my uh listeners um and this is your views but so your tips and advice it's our last section so somebody's listening to this okay they've just listened to you know amen Holmes, be amen Holmes. but they're you know and a lot of them are, are women a lot of mothers and i know you have so much um appreciation of mothers you you know very special mothers uh, in your life um and but also they you know have ambitions or just hopes and or uh, and someone who is just not feeling great you know they're not fulfilling themselves and they know deep down they want to do something else but they don't know what it's going to be what would you say to that person
1: oh never give up on your dreams always have dreams what's life without dreams i mean dreams are beautiful no matter how unrealistic without a dream you know a dream dream is what keeps us all going you may never fulfill it but life is richer for having it and you know i'm not one of these people you know you're you're 38 stone and i can say oh i can have you looking like an adonis in five weeks or whatever it's it's not what i'm trying to say i'm not saying everything's realistic but i'm saying it's nice to aspire it's nice to watch people who maybe um carry out the dream that you're wishing for it's beautiful it's lovely to have heroes heroes in you know sporting life in films um in everyday life in your family it's always nice to aspire so i would say keep dreaming keep dreaming
0: and ask because i asked you and you said yes so eamon holmes obe thank you so much for being such a fabulous guest on my next chapter podcast and making my dream come true
1: Ellie Barker, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.
0: So, there you are. What did you think of that? Now, personally, I learned so much. Everyone is always learning. I love Eamon's advice, even him. Look at the top 1% or 2% in whatever you want to do and see how they're doing it. But it goes to show, doesn't it, whatever job we do, whoever we are, there are always ups and downs. And as Eamon says, some stories are more similar than you'd think. Now, I can only thank Eamon for saying yes and making my dream come true. Apologies for any high-pitchedness back there, but it was 25 years. I'd also like to thank you. I promised myself I would only ask him after a year of doing this podcast. And thanks to you, my brilliant listeners, just by joining me on these conversations, you gave me the courage to ask. So thank you. Now to keep up with my next chapter, you can find me and my books at elliebarkerwrites.com. If you could rate and review this episode and subscribe, well then that would be marvellous. It really, really would. Do get in touch. I'd love to know how your next chapters are going. I'd also just love to hear from you. You're listening to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker, a flowerpot production. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, remember, keep hold of those dreams. Who knows one day they really may come true. Speak soon.